The Shaggy Jenkins Show. We have to make Russia great again. On the Pacifica Radio Network. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network, live from the tiny isle of Maui, Aloha, and welcome to it. Hey, if this is your first time checking out the show, Boy, are you in for a shock. We have got a lot of stuff to run through today, including how the Trump war uh, between China and United States trade could actually backfire when it comes to the Rust Belt, Uh, hatred of the press, lies, bullying, and all this stuff to come. Uh, Before we get to all of that, some brief introductions are in line. Uh, My name is Shaggy. I am the host of this show, critical thinker, a problem solver, guy just left of normal insane, and always found centered in common sense and on my website at shaggyjingots.com or wherever fine social media is trolled uh, just look for me at shaggy live um you can also support our show if you would like to uh by giving us a listen on stitcher spotify or just look on patreon for the shaggy jenkins show and become one of our members we've got some Pretty cool stuff for you guys. Uh, things that are not so cool are our stories today. And really, we should probably start off with the story of Pittsburgh with an H. Remember that the uh, last week, how I was kind of just little teasing and prodding at Sarah Huckabee Sanders because she made a statement about Pittsburgh but didn't actually spell Pittsburgh Well, it seems this week that at least somebody in the White House could find Pittsburgh and nobody wanted him to. And when I say nobody, I mean nobody. It looks like the visit that Donald Trump uh, was going to pay on Tuesday, it seemed like kind of a political stop to make himself look a little bit better, you know, get those midterm good warm and fuzzies up. Well, it kind of backfired. You see, this day trip that was planned without really telling anybody got everybody riled up, including the mayor of Pittsburgh. Yes, the very mayor of the city was like asking them, please do not come here. But Trump did. And when he got there, was met with a lot of protesters. Now, Trump, of course, visited the synagogue. He visited the officers that were injured during the course of the shootout in the hospital, made no public statements, and quickly just kind of bowed out of town. But the thing is, is that this trip, even though it was supposed to be, and and let's let's back up a second, okay? Because here's something that I'm going to say that's going to shock you. It's kind of normal for a president in the aftermath of a tragedy to visit that town. Now, I know what you're thinking, Shaggy. It is normal for a president, but it is certainly not normal for Donald Trump, who let's just go ahead and go through the mass shootings in the United States that he just tweeted about and never really showed up at, and um, his wildly Uh, wildly crazy theories on how we can stop all of this stuff by more guns. Yes, because Australia found that out years ago. The solution to gun violence? Definitely, definitely more guns. It was all in front of us the whole time. But look, the thing is, is when Donald Trump was going to announce his trip, 
This is kind of a quid pro quo for presidents. They go to places that experience national tragedies or, or very big heartbreaking events like this shooting, and they show up just as a kind of a way of representing the nation grieving with them. This is, for all intents and purposes, normal presidential behavior. Now, with that said, it should be noted that Donald Trump, time and time again, has kind of legitimized white supremacy. Remember in the aftermath of Charleston, uh, or Charlottesville, I should say, and in the aftermath of, well, the Charleston shootings and the aftermath of, oh God, you name it. The thing is, is Trump kind of has this tendency to respond wrong, but in this case, it looked like, for, like I said, at least for exterior reasons, that Trump was going to do the right thing and just visit a grieving town and not really make a big political deal of it. Now, of course, we all know that he would make a political deal of it later, all right? There's this thing called Twitter. And he discovered it years ago, much to the chagrin of the free world. But when it comes to how presidents act in the aftermath of tragedy, it might give you some explanation of why the mayor of Pittsburgh didn't want specifically this president there. Now, in the aftermath of Charlottesville, Donald Trump basically came forward even after a woman, Heather Hare, was killed by a white supremacist that was there during the protest. Uh, Donald Trump came out and said that there was, quote, good people on both sides. Now, this legitimized, and, and I read the tweets from David Duke saying, God bless him, he didn't condemn us, he had the chance, but he didn't, God bless him, God bless Donald Trump. I, 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 I quoted David Duke, I quoted people like the Proud Boys and everybody else, Unite the Right, all of these groups that came out and said, yay, Donald Trump thinks that we're not part of the problem, that means that we could do whatever the hell we want. That's kind of the dog whistle signal that he sent back then. And these groups, let's just be honest, aren't really known for their cozy relationship with people of the, uh, the Jewish faith and of Jewish descent. You could say that they have a, a very, well, nobody did not see that coming. Pun intended. Look, when it comes to these groups, though, time and time again, Donald Trump, by not going on the attack, like every other president in history, at least in modern history, has. When it comes to a domestic uh, bread hate group, they've, they've taken to the podium and said, you know, this doesn't represent the ideals of America. Well, Donald Trump did the opposite of that and took to the podium and said, well, not letting guys like this have a forum doesn't represent America. And changing the dynamic of how he talked about groups of white supremacy and specifically people with feelings of uh, white supremacy, Donald Trump legitimized them. And by legitimizing them, they started to become empowered and I know this is going to sound crazy from a president that has done 
nothing but nice things for the Jewish people. Remember that? Sarah Huckabee Sanders and, 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 and all of the Trump defenders came out in droves and basically said, yeah, Trump, he's uh, all right. You know why he's all right? Because uh, he does everything possible for the Jewish people and the, the, the nation of Israel. But does he? Because domestically, he does seem to spend a lot of time kind of talking around certain arguments that most presidents wouldn't waste time talking around. They would just issue an outright, a uh, those people are bad, these things are bad, we shouldn't do those things as American kind of statement, and, and would move on. They would call it a night, but not Donald Trump. Donald Trump, time and time again, seems to be coming to the waters of, here we go, a very scary thing in our country, normalizing and legitimizing white supremacy as a political force, okay? That's that's like basically saying, you know what, after the end of World War II, even though the Nazis were doing bad things, let's keep them around as a political party just because in our our country, we believe in freedom of expression, and, and they have things to express, too. Now, I know I've told you time and time again about how that's not necessarily true that the First Amendment protects those type of people. Why? Well, it's easy, because hateful and insightful language is actually banned. So, with these groups, when they start to speak out against their, you know, enemies in their nationalist, and remember, that was the next step on the Trump tier, using the words, I am a nationalist, was a dog whistle to these white supremacists to say, yep, it's okay to be that way. Donald Trump said so, so it's here to stay. And as much as it seems that it would be very, very odd for a president to kind of court the feelings of these groups... I'm going to jump from this story to another story that might explain why Donald Trump is so niche-focused on this anti-immigration, pro-nationalism stance. It has to do with the people that he's losing the most. Now, in yesterday's program, uh, we discussed very briefly how it was women, independent women, that the Republicans are losing the most. And I know what you're thinking, really? Really? No surprise there. But hear me out. When it comes to Donald Trump and the problem with voters, he seems to be losing a lot in those areas that he had made huge gains in 2016 with. And where did he make those gains? Well, of course, in the fields of anti-immigration, and let's crack down on the world to save the poor farmer. You know, the Rust Belt actually came out very overwhelmingly, not only for Donald Trump as a candidate, but time and time and time again, he loves holding rallies along these little dotted places along the Rust Belt because the warm reception that they've always given him and It goes without saying. Coming up in the midterms, Republicans are facing kind of an uphill battle from some pretty tough competition in these Rust Belt areas. Areas which for the longest time in the Republican uh, view 
haven't really been in danger, but now they are. And why are they in danger when they were never before? When these Republicans might as well have been called entrenched, they were so in there. Why are these areas now in trouble? Why is Donald Trump, once again, trying to amp up a lot of rhetoric and, of course, elicit as many good feelings as possible around the, uh, around the elections right now? Well, it turns out that those trade wars that Trump engaged in with China have taken some pretty heavy toll on the Midwest farmers. Now, those people that Donald Trump make farmers great again and all of that stuff that he was courting, they're now starting to say, wait a minute, uh, you promised me something better than this, and I'm not getting it. What the hell is going on? I want my money back, Mr. Trump. Well, at least I want my vote back. Uh, A lot of the people that had swung over in the Rust Belts and supported Donald Trump overwhelmingly over the rest of the Republican candidates, are now starting to feel the effects of Trump's trade war. And as that trade war continues to cost the Midwest money, the more it's putting pressure on Donald Trump to find a new reason to re-excite these people about his positions. Now, in his agenda, you, you probably notice, and, and we've discussed this on the show, Donald Trump has a very easy system for getting things done his way. First, he makes a very wild statement on Twitter. Then he tries to dominate the news cycle by just detracting from every other story out there. Then a little bit of Russian propaganda whataboutism later And Fox News, the state wing of the the media right now, kind of echoes what he says, and, and the ball gets rolling from there. Now, with this stuff, Donald Trump has always kind of tried to excite his base and keep them excited because, let's face it, the agenda that he's working on is kind of counterintuitive to their needs. But, When it comes to farmers, he has tried to say trade wars are easy, trade wars are great, things will be wonderful for farmers, don't worry about it, I, Donald J. Trump, great negotiator, I got this. And then, lo these months later, he has proceeded not to indeed got this. Now, the trade wars have for the longest time, kind of upset things. And I know analysts are saying, but look at some of the ways that it upset them. We've renegotiated a NAFTA deal, which has opened up certain markets in Canada that weren't open before. We have um, kind of brought to the table countries like North Korea, and even to a degree, we have China back at the table in ways they weren't before, thanks to this kind of approach that Donald Trump has had, this white-knuckle, God help us, we're going to do it anyway kind of approach. Well, short-term results may look good, but when it comes to long-term consequences, you know how you can tell whether or not an administration is working? How healthy is the economy of the people that were promised to be benefiting the most. 
turns out, with all of these trade wars and all of these tariffs, the people that are feeling the pinch the most are the ones that begged for relief. It's the Midwesterners. People in the Rust Belt are starting to feel the consequences of these tariffs with China. And that is kind of a bad thing for the GOP. Now, keep in mind, Donald Trump is is doing his adamant best right now to make sure that everybody is going to vote Republican. Remember, a couple of rallies ago, he said, think that the, the, of this election as me on the ticket. Vote like I'm on it. Vote, vote, vote. Right? And this was kind of at the same speech where he did the whole I'm a nationalist thing. But moving on, Donald Trump and Republicans are saying, hey, you have to stay the course with us because look at how many great things we've done. Look at the tax cuts that you're all benefiting from. Look at how the trade wars is bringing back American manufacturing and industry and how the farm is growing. And that would be great if any of those things that I had just mentioned were indeed factually happening. But now, as the trade wars go on with China, it's starting to pinch the little guy and the American farmer. How so? Well, there's all that fancy equipment that they used to get. Those have tariffs on it. All the building materials and stuff like that, those have tariffs on it. And let's just go ahead and... uh, run through okay we don't have time that would take up the rest of the show there is a lot of products that are now experiencing heavy tariffs on the part of the chinese from american producers and that means americans are starting to experience less access to the chinese market with less access comes less revenue with less revenue comes more pressure for these guys to reconsider who they're voting for And it seems like Trump and the GOP knows that. You want to know why? It's because once Trump, and this is a thing that you you have to realize about this guy, once Trump realizes he can't win an argument, he changes the argument. He changes the, the, the very tone of everything he's talking about and goes off on a different direction because he's wanting to stay hashtag winning. But it, it doesn't really work like that in world diplomacy, especially when it comes to economic diplomacy. You can't just shift the argument by talking about something unrelated. But Trump is hoping that it does at least work with the election. With the midterms coming up and the pressure on the GOP to retain seats that they did not know were in danger before, they had no sense that these seats were going to be as endangered as they are. With all of the pressure on them now, do you know what Trump cannot do? He can't have a losing moment. And when it comes to the, the tariffs, when it comes to the trade war, there's not a lot of stuff that he can brag about. When it comes to the tax cuts, the GOP uh, really can't brag about that because reports have come out saying that the national debt has escalated at a faster pace than anticipated. Oh, and by the way, the tax breaks went to the wealthy, not to the people that they were supposed to be promised to, you know, The middle class, the middle class who's right now in the Rust Belt, not only feeling all these exterior pressures, but also 
kind of feeling the internal pressure of what do we do next? Because somebody has to come along and end the trade war so that our access to foreign markets improve again. Uh, somebody really has to come along and do something about this situation of where and who I can get my uh, crops harvested by or, you know, harvested at. Uh, the reason I bring that up is because once you start cutting off uh, immigration and the numbers that we're doing, you experience this whole problem with transient or migrant workers that usually come up from Mexico. I know, hard to believe, come up to Mexico come up from Mexico, work, and then return to Mexico. With the uh, problems of getting those workers into and out of the United States more and more often, farmers are finding out that their crops are rotting in the field. And then Donald Trump, instead of talking about reform oh, and getting all of this stuff fixed with the tariffs, switches the argument over to something that he thinks Midwesterners will embrace. So now, instead of talking about trade wars are easy, Donald Trump wants to talk about how immigration is bad and how all of these nefarious elements are out there coming for the United States and that he and he alone in his administration, maybe a little bit more so him than his administration, you know how it goes. He'll, he'll take most of the credit himself at the end of the day. But, okay, look, what's going to happen here is that Donald Trump is going to try to shift the argument right ahead of the midterms to something that he thinks will invigorate his base once again. And the issue that he's latched on to right now is immigration. He's saying stuff like, oh, we've got to stop all these people from coming in. We have got to send, and this is no joke, more people right now to America's southern border than are engaged in fighting terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda. Yeah, they're still around. Taliban. Yeah, they're still around. Uh, we have more people sitting on the southern border of the United States for this migrant caravan that's not a real threat instead of Afghanistan and the Middle East and other places where United States soldiers are actually needing some reinforcements. Donald Trump is hoping that by waging an absolute war on immigration, he can kind of distract and keep people from thinking about the horrible things that are happening with the trade wars and the deficit. And, and this is the thing. It works. I know that's hard to believe, but every time that Donald Trump pivots from an argument he can't win into something else, even the mainstream media and most of his base take the bait and they stop talking about the thing that he was actually losing at. But it looks like voters, more so than the mainstream media, more so than, than Donald Trump himself, the voters have a longer memory. And when it comes to this longer memory, they're starting to kind of evaluate really carefully the benefits and the consequences of a Donald Trump administration. Uh, now, with this evaluation, there could be a Midwest blue wave. And according to a lot of polls, it looks like there could be. And I don't want to say it like it's a, 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 a big surefire thing, but make no doubt about it 
as much as Donald Trump tried to get up in front of people at his rally and proclaim that they need to vote for all the wonderful things that the Republicans are doing, specifically vote like he is on the ballot, those very same people might vote against him with the mindset that his agenda and this losing trade war and this increasing deficit, all of this is Donald Trump. And instead of voting for it, it looks like they could vote against it. Now, it's going to be hard to tell, especially with the elections coming up, but Go ahead and mark this down as a prediction for the rest of the week. And, and we'll, we'll try to follow in with our correspondents when we do our Week in the Review show. Uh, okay, because I'm going to go ahead and say that once this immigration thing gets heated and Donald Trump gets some traction with it, he will invent another Democratic conspiracy before next week's election. Call it a funny feeling or call it a careful analysis of the pattern of behavior that Donald Trump has shown in the past, especially before special elections. There is always, always, always an 11th hour conspiracy. Now, he's trying right now to gain traction with the immigration conspiracy, with the ISIS being embedded with the migrant train conspiracy. He's trying to. And what that's led to is a lot of white nationalists in the United States thinking that it's time to take up arms and go to war. But at the end of the day, what it could do is in the battle for the American voter cost Donald Trump and the GOP a lot. And with polls saying that it's going to be a very narrow vote between the two houses, <gasps> dear God, Hold on for how crazy Donald Trump's conspiracy theory uh, 11th hour surprise could actually be. Because I'm going to go ahead and tell you something. It's going to be a doozy. But speaking of the methods of Donald Trump, coming up, we got to talk about Donald Trump and one of our favorite sycophants and how they're trying to use a whataboutism and scapegoating to get your attention away from the damage that their words are causing. Who are those people and what are those words? You know one of them. You'll find out the other one. Up next, it's the Shaggy Jenkins Show. Welcome to 60 Second Civics, the daily podcast of the Center for Civic Education. I'm Mark Gage. The American colonies can be divided into three regions, New England, the Middle Colonies, and the Southern Colonies. At the time of American independence in 1776, the New England colonies were Rhode Island, Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. Present-day New England also includes the states of Vermont and Maine, but at the time of independence, Vermont was part of New Hampshire, and Maine was part of Massachusetts. The economy of the New England colonies was characterized by fishing, shipbuilding, logging, fur trapping, and trading, and small-scale farming. The New England colonies were rich in natural resources, particularly fish, furs, and timber, but farming was generally carried out on small independent farms that provided only enough food for the family. 
New England was home to some of the first of England's colonies in the New World. Some of these colonies succeeded, but some did not last long. One successful colony was in Plymouth, Massachusetts, which the Pilgrims established in 1620. It later merged into the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which claimed a large swath of territory that includes present-day Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. Many New England colonists were fleeing religious persecution in England. Like the Pilgrims, Roger Williams was a Puritan who immigrated to America. Puritans were a Protestant religious group that disagreed with the Church of England on important matters of faith. However, Williams was himself expelled from Massachusetts for his political and religious beliefs, and founded the colony of Rhode Island and Providence plantations, which today is the state of Rhode Island. That's all for today's podcast, 60 Second Civics, where civic education only takes a minute. There's a lot at stake this November. 36 governorships, 35 Senate seats, and all 435 House seats are up for election. If only 50% of voters show up, it would be the highest midterm turnout in a century. Learn more and get involved at iamavoter.com. And don't forget to vote Tuesday, November 6th. Brought to you by I am a voter and the Ad Council. Dig deeper. Remove the hype. Find the facts. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. Welcome back to it. Hey, if this is your first time checking out the show, aloha. We're from Maui. Yeah, you know, the 50th state of Hawaii, which is really kind of a illegally occupied kingdom. There's a lot of history on it. But if you want to look for more of that, You should probably go online, where you can find our website, shaggyjenkins.com, as long as you're looking for、uh, good stuff to follow. Follow me on、uh, social media at shaggylive. Getting back into some of our stories of the day, I want to take a moment to talk about some of the comments that have come out in the aftermath of these tragic events recently in the United States, and specifically who those people are targeting. Now, last week, we had just got through this whole spat of people going on a、uh, kill Donald Trump's、uh, political enemies. In, in one case,、uh, literally, lately, when it comes to his base, they, they want to see death, destruction, and mayhem on every institution that is against their institutions. And now it appears. That one of those institutions that the right is after is late night comedy on television. Now, everybody knows no matter who is in the White House, late night comedians during their opening monologues always kind of take jabs at the president and also take jabs at、uh, trending stories. And I mean, this has been. Kind of the case ever since I was a kid watching Johnny Carson. Yeah, I'm that old, kids. If you don't know who Johnny Carson is, he existed and he was pretty good at his job. And one of the things that he did in his opening monologues was always kind of talked a little bit of smack about what was happening in the headlines and specifically from time to time what the man in charge, aka the president, was up to. Now, when she came. 
to Fox and Friends on Monday. I'm sure Kellyanne Conway was trying in her most sincerest form to figure out who, besides her boss, herself, everyone linked to the administration, the press secretary, and anyone that lately has made a public statement from the Republican Party, she's been looking for somebody who is responsible for the rise of hatred in this country. And her target was late-night TV. Her quote was, and, and this is so weird, because she says specifically it's the anti-religious nature of how people make jokes on late-night TV that has escalated some of this violence. Her quote was, quote, the anti-religiosity in this country that is somehow in vogue and funny to make fun of anybody of faith, to constantly be making fun of people who express religion, the late-night comedians, the unfunny people on TV, it's always anti-religious. Okay, first off, those are her words, and no, that wasn't just a random word scramble. Um, But the thing is that she's trying to say is that because late-night comedians, or anybody in general, has kind of a detachment from the Judeo-Christian faith that her and her administration adhere to, that is the reason for problems in this country. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a very dangerous statement to come out of a public official's mouth. Now, she'd went on and said that she believes people should actually rely on religious faith when things get crazy around them. Don't don't go out and vote. Don't go out and petition for actions. Don't don't report people. If you see something crazy, no. Pray on it. That is that is her strategy, to tell people that they, instead of taking any sort of um, action, they should instead go back to their religious roots. And because these darn late-night people don't like religion, which is actually a very false statement, I'm going to say this as a person from the South. You know how many jokes I make about North Carolina on this program? The reason why is because I was born and raised there. And my jokes, even though harmful, actually come from a place of actually understanding and knowing and appreciating, yes, appreciating the culture that comes from that area. And a lot of times when people on late night programs make jokes about religion, they're actually members of those religious sects that they're making fun of. In other words, it's kind of an insider joke, and it's not anti-religious at all. It's pro-humor. And I hate to say it, but if you're in a religion that is anti-humor, you know how Jordan Peele had that movie? Get out. Maybe you should as well. But Kellyanne Conway, getting out of her wits on this, basically said, look, the escalation of violence in this country is not due to the president's rhetoric. It's not due to the escalation of violence on Twitter that he constantly not only endorses, but also kind of applauds. It's not about that at all. It's about late night television and their jokes about anti-religion. Well, this is the thing. When it comes to the United States, there's a lot of people that are anti-religion. 
we call them atheists, people that don't ascribe to any sort of denominational or organized religion or construct of how the universe was made. Some of them are scientific skeptics. Some of them are just, meh, too lazy to come up with a thought of their own. I, I fall in the former, not the latter. But the thing that I'm saying is, is that people without a Judeo-Christian background also have a strong moral fiber. I know that's hard to believe in some areas where uh, going to church on Sundays and Wednesdays is a way of life, but for some people, not going to church on Sundays and Wednesdays and just being a decent person is a way of life. And even when it comes to people making fun of faith-based religions, a lot of that is just harmless banter, especially when it comes to late-night television. But Kellyanne Conway, in, 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 in her wise ways, has figured out that those guys and, and gals are the actual culprits in the culture of the United States as far as its decline is concerned. But she's overlooking the behavior of her boss. You see, Donald Trump is an I. I don't know why nobody is really picking up on this. At the end of the day, he is the one that is ultimately responsible for the escalation of violence that we're seeing, especially when it comes to hate-based crimes against people of different racial or ethnic backgrounds and attacks on the press. But Donald Trump's hatred of the press, his consistent lying, his consistent campaign rallying, and bullying his political uh, opposition is echoing a lot of behavior that we've not seen in the United States and instead more dangerous, dangerous, wow, Shaggy, get that word out, more dangerous regimes from around the world. Now, 11 people were killed by semi-automatic weapons in Philadelphia at the Tree of Life Synagogue. Donald Trump basically, how do I say this? Instead of coming out and said, we condemn the actions of the shooters and our hearts and sim- uh, our hearts and thoughts and prayers go out to, I know thoughts and prayers, it's not a good thing, but you, you know what I'm saying. He didn't come out and just do the normal presidential condolence thing. He instead offered a solution. Hey, you should have had some guys inside of there with guns. Yes, Jewish people, you should be armed when you go to synagogue because that is the only true protection they could have had. And if they had had this protection, I, Donald Trump Adamus, uh, that was a real stretch there, trying to combine Donald with Nostradamus, but I did it. At least I think I did. But uh, Donald Tradamus, there we go, uh, basically says, I can see like a seer into the future. And had there been somebody with a gun, well, that would have stopped the violence. Not the fact that I, the President of the United States, have been undermining the whole political badness of white supremacy have been legitimizing and normalizing it for months and have been dog whistling for people to take action against my political enemies as well as their own because we are in an all-out war for the United States. No, instead of doing any of that, Donald Trump has kind of engaged in sadistic behavior. And I know that's kind of a weird thing to say, but 
yeah, he is kind of sadistic. And he uses what we would consider historically vile modus operandi, an MO, as the police would call it. But Donald Trump does kind of mirror regimes that in the past the United States has really not wanted to be cozy with. Now, take for instance Donald Trump's bullying of the press. It's one of the things that has been well enshrined and and guaranteed by the First Amendment, the free and open press, freedom of speech and all of that, right? Well, that doesn't work good for a regime a regime that does want to kind of maintain a whole cult of personality behind their greatness. Other regimes around the world, when they've encountered this kind of, oh, a free and open media is not for everything that I'm doing, let's clamp down on them, is none other than Turkey's Erdogan. Now, in the past, Donald Trump, despite this guy having a horrendous human rights record, Despite this guy basically making people vanish when they're his political enemy and not really having any couth to cover it up as much as the Saudis did. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that as, as sarcasm. The Saudis didn't do a good job of it. And Turkey, they definitely haven't done in a, a good job of it with their death squads. But the fact of the matter is, is that their modus of operandi comes from their president harassing the free and open media, stoking up his base, saying that the media is actually their enemy, too, and then using that impetus to close them down and to shut down media that was not favorable to his administration. Now, that's just one of the ways that kind of despotic leaders grab power, and it's one of the things that Donald Trump does here all the time, but he doesn't just use the whole method of the fake news moniker. No, he consistently discredits the organizations behind the news and not only tries to discredit them, but discredit the sources that they are reporting on. Donald Trump time and time again, has kind of had this weird separatist relationship with reality. And through that relationship or non-relationship with reality, Donald Trump has used his platform at rallies. And whenever he's caught by the press outside on the lawn of the White House, he's used that platform to do everything in his power to convince everyone watching that the sources of media that they're paying attention to aren't as credible as the words coming out of his mouth, that he is, at the end of the day, the ultimate source of truth in this country. Now, people in the past have done that, and I know I could bring up the old H word here, but I read an article over the weekend that basically said every time that we compare Donald Trump to Hitler, we're actually kind of belittling Hitler. And there might be a lot of merit to the arguments in that article. So instead of just comparing him to that, we could also compare him to people like Mussolini, who, once again, 
found out that a free and open media isn't really good, and through a systematic way of bullying, setting them up, playing gotcha moments, managed to convince his fascist base that a free and open media was actually a very bad thing for their country. It's not, by the way. It's one of the cornerstones of keeping democracy in check. But he always discredits the press, and through doing that, no matter how many times, and we went through this, a blockbuster story released on a Friday afternoon by New York Times alleging that the President of the United States had engaged in hundreds of millions of dollars of tax fraud And they had a paper trail on it, and it went all the way back to the time that he was handling his dad finances. We had a story that basically came out on Friday and died Saturday morning. Not only because there was more news in the cycle that Donald Trump was throwing up, but because he had done his adamant best in a campaign for months and months and months and months to discredit the New York Times. And so when a legitimate news story comes out that uses capital J journalism, like the piece in the New York Times comes out, it's very easy for Donald Trump, in his position of constantly discrediting the media, to go ahead and say, yeah, that's just another fake log on the fake fire. Now, he doesn't just mock them, he lies about them constantly and lies to them constantly. And when the press comes back and tries to do a follow-up, he says, well, I said it, that's what some people believe, and you tell me you're the reporter, and he stops answering questions. In other words, Donald Trump is so, so happy with committing this whole let's create a conspiracy and run kind of operation. And it it works to his favor when it comes to his base, constantly making it look like, from their appearances, that Donald Trump is one step ahead. But just because you're the guy drawing the map and you keep putting in different curves and stuff and then pulling out new sections of the map that you drew out in private and said, ha-ha, you didn't know about this piece, doesn't exactly make you a cartographer. That is a joke that I'm sure went over a lot of people's heads. But I assure you, it was a joke. Uh, The thing is, though, is that when it comes to the press, that's not the only institution that Donald Trump bullies and tries to push around. Also, his political rivals, who he uses a system of name-calling, detracting, and alleging that they have probably done nefarious activities in secret, he uses all of that to discredit them. And it worked for the longest time as well. These patterns of behavior. I know this is going to seem odd that somebody is having to say this out loud, but these patterns of behavior do not befit a president of the United States. They befit a despotic dictator. Somebody that is looking to bend the wheel not only of the press, but of culture itself into securing their own divine rule. And I know you're probably saying, oh, God, Shaggy, you're, you're just being exaggerative here. You're just stretching out some little bitty thing into this huge blown conspiracy theory, just like Donald Trump, the guy that you're talking about. But am I really? Because 
Trump has always kind of resided from a position of power within his private world. And let's just go ahead and be honest, when it comes to using lies to get ahead, Donald Trump lied his way onto the Forbes list, then used that lie of the Forbes list to lie his way into billions of dollars of investment, which then he lost in some bad real estate investments, and then used lies once again to rebuild his brand and reclaim his real estate empire. And then, on the proof of all of these lies, pitched a show about his winning formula for life to a network and lied his way into candidacy for the presidency of the United States. All of these systems of lies, no matter how many times Donald Trump has called on them, he's always managed to get away from the label of being a liar. How does he do it, though? He just creates another lie. You see, lies work in two kind of ways. One, if you're trying to tell a lie and maintain that lie, you have to tell uh, supplementary or auxiliary lies that support the initial lie constantly, and you have to kind of remember a concise timeline of how that lie happened. With Donald Trump's method, it's more like a shotgun to the face. He'll tell you a couple dozen lies, and when those lies kind of run out of steam with the sensationalism of them, he'll make up an even bigger sensational lie and detract away from the lies that he's always told, uh, already told you. In other words, he's jumping from lily pads of lies to the next. And this kind of behavior has been shown throughout history to be the tool of people that want absolute power with zero checks and balances. They're trying to eliminate the power structures, or should I say the power restrictions, to the office that they are occupying. And the more restrictions that people like Donald Trump can remove, the more that they can get away with doing more and more nefarious things. Now, nefarious things, you're probably wondering, what does that mean? It probably means things like, you know, Donald Trump bragging to some of his close inner circle that the presidency has made him very, very, very rich. Or, you know, all of the foreign investments that his sons, even though they're supposed to be running the country independent of him, under Donald Trump's directions, there's even the whole story of how Donald Trump's sons use the presidential influence that Trump has to help close foreign real estate deals for Trump Enterprises. With all of this stuff that we know happens, why is it that Trump continues to get away from it? Well, it's because the more that he can keep up turmoil, the more that he can keep up chaos, and the more that he can inflame kind of us versus them mentality, not only within his base, but among his political adversaries, the more Trump can do those things and maintain those things, the more his grip on power becomes certain. And that's why when he goes to these rallies that, let's just face it, if you're rallying for a re-election three months after your first term election, you might have a little problem with priorities in life when it comes to serving as president of the United States. However, 
when it comes to Donald Trump's system of constantly campaigning, constantly lying, constantly jumping in front of people, there is, as they say in Hamlet, a method to his madness. Distract, delegitimize, discredit, and deny. In those words, time and time again, Donald Trump has used like a mantra, almost like it is a brainwashing technique. The whole whataboutism. What about this? What about that? What about that? Well, after you go down the rabbit hole of so many whatabouts, you forgot the original point that you were on. And Donald Trump's system of using that type of coercion, not only against people that could possibly vote for him in his base, but against his political adversaries and even his inner circle. Remember, Donald Trump will lie and manipulate people next to him if it will keep him in power. There is really no limits to the amount of activity that he will engage in. But that's where the effectiveness should worry us all. With telltale things like a whole detachment from reality and, uh, let's just face it, a little bit of a penchant for trying to avoid any blame and having his, his lieutenants and underdons go out in front of the press in a whole big splattering, denying everything that Trump actually did, sometimes on tape. Donald Trump is modeling his behavior more after singular dictators than democratically elected representatives of their country, i.e. presidents and prime ministers. And I know what you're thinking, oh, Shaggy, this is just another one of those big scare tactics, but hear me out. Because people that don't see this, people that are not aware of what Donald Trump is up to, will be voting coming up next week. And they'll be voting for things like this whole separating children from their parents at the border, arming the southern border more than we do our Middle East troops and divisions who still need those reinforcements. And all we're doing is trying to create a huge scare so that people will vote a certain way. Well, in a week... The people that are not, and I, I know this is a horrible thing to say, but the people that are not savvy enough, the people that are not skeptical enough to look behind the stories of what Donald Trump says, to look past the lie and to find the truth, those people are going to be voting. And I told you earlier in this program that I'm from North Carolina, and there's a very troubling picture right now that's went viral this week that I want to bring up at this point. It shows people in my home state wearing Confederate flags, some with Nazi swastikas on them, giving the president a Heil Hitler salute. And, of course, large crowds of protesters all wearing Nazi swastikas and Confederate flags in North Carolina, where I'm from, giving the old Heil Hitler an outdoor protest. Those people are going to vote. And the less of us commonsensical people 
the people that believe in decent and good values, the less of us that show up at the polls, the more magnitude racist Heil Hitler swastika Confederate flag wearing rednecks from North Carolina, the more their vote will count. And we can't have that. Because when it comes to where we are as a country, look, I could tell you that even though the course of this program I brought up how much of this stuff is the president's fault, at the end of the day, if you don't go out and hit those polls next week, it's your fault as well. Because it's not just who you're voting for, it's what you're voting against. And a lot of people in this country are voting against progression, equality, and gender rights. And we need to stop them. Till next time, love you, mean it, get in by.